I know you understand it. All right, let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. Thank you for last night's Seder. And thank you for all the different ways that you you encourage us, not only with your word, not only with your uh, laying your, your hand on our hearts and encouraging us with your Holy Spirit, but also by reminding us of the richness of our heritage, where we come from, and uh, why we do the things we do. I pray, Lord, inhabit our discussion here this morning in Sunday School and help us just to, to lay all of ourselves at your feet. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're going through, we're talking about uh, the age of Crusades, because it's still, we're right in the middle of, of, of Crusades being just the thing going on in the Middle Ages. Everybody's enjoying it. This week, we start the 13th century, which is a lot of fun. Kill them all, get, let God sort them out which is how I'm synopsizing this, but that really is kind of the... Oh, golly. <laughs> the whole Christensen family is here. That's great. All right. Fun thing about Crusades, everybody wants to kill everybody. Now, remember last week we talked about Richard dying from that crossbow bolt, right? Almost immediately, Philip turns on the newly crowned King John. Philip, the King of France, turns on his ally and starts grabbing everything he can back in France. Between Philip reconquering all the territory, between uh, him and, and, and him declaring that France is now independent of the Holy Roman Empire, um, there's a new kingdom growing <coughs> in Hungary, is in height. Uh, all these different things, things going on in Spain, England invading Ireland. Europe is starting to look different again. We're starting to have a different sense of this. For the first time, France is seeing itself as its own nation. So, in large part because Philip is such a strong king, and John isn't, right? John's kind of a messed up king. So we've got a different kind of dynamic going on here all the way around. If you'll notice over here in the, in the Middle East, the Crusader states are dwindling. They're not doing really well. Let's gasp. You know, that you can... Cause that, that fourth crusade that's coming up, that 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 work, that's going to work so great. They're going to pull it. They're going to pull it together, right? We've had three crusades so far. Fourth one would be good. Everybody's slaughtering everybody, and everybody's seeing it as payback, because it's not just a matter of this is the righteous thing to do, or even just this gets me the most land. But you deserve it. You hurt me before. I finally get to hurt you back. Right? Good Christian perspective, isn't it? Totally biblical. Do we still struggle with this today? This idea of, well, now I have the power and it's in your face. Right? We still do that. We still do that. And this is a wrong mindset. This is what everybody's getting lost in. There is no end to the tit for tat. Once Scott does something to me, and so I get him back, so he gets me back. Right, so now I have to get him back. At which point... It is! It's exactly what it is. And I don't care whether it's something as simple as uh, back in college, we, we did pranks on one another, and, and one girl, it got out of hand. She just, she wanted to one-up everybody. And it got to the point she was, like, damaging property, you know, doing dangerous things, and we're like, you have to stop this. Um, or it's uh, Hatfields and McCoys, or whatever. Once you get into this tip, for t or Samson and the Philistines, once you get into this tit-for-tat mindset, it's hard to get out of it. Europe is thoroughly entrenched in this tit-for-tat mindset at this stage. You hurt me, so I get to, to, to take it back on you. Which brings us to the Fourth Crusade. Because now we're going to go and we're going to do some good. we got a brand new Pope, Pope Innocent III, took the throne in 1198. And he says, I'm going to be a mover and shaker in Europe. I'm going to change everything. And so he preached a new crusade, and it went nowhere. Nobody wanted to do it, because the Germans didn't like the Pope. If you remember, the Holy Roman Empire and the papacy are kind of heaving at the moment. They're not getting along real well. And, this, and, and Spain is trying to reconquer Spain, and England and France are fighting each other. So the Pope goes, let's go to the Holy Land. Everybody's like, no. You have no interest in going to the Holy Land, right? Is there anybody who had any interest in going to the Holy Land at this stage? No, they're all having fun doing their own thing. And the only reason you go to the Holy Land is if, what? If you're bored, or if you thought that you could get something out of it. That's why you follow God, right? Because God wants us to go to the Holy Land and fight. Well, 
only if it feathers my nest. I'm too busy feathering my nest here in Europe. Even the unhealthy, let's go to the Holy Land and kill people for Jesus mindset is going by the wayside. So he's like, let's go do a crusade. Nobody goes. So he decides he's going to insinuate himself into European politics. By this time, it's figured out that whoever is the king of Sicily and this whole boot and football has, has now become the kingdom of Sicily. It's been decided that whoever's the king of Sicily is the one who's in line to be the next emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. Because when you think boot and football of Italy, you think German ruler, right? It's an interesting time in history, right? So, so these, are, these are linked, the boot and the yellow part of, of, of Europe. Whoever is going to be king of Sicily, that's going to be the next Holy Roman Empire. Richard and Philip have bad, different contenders. Of course they have. Richard and Philip, who used to be best buddies, are now vicious enemies. If one of them said the sky was blue, the other one would say, no, and I'll kill you over it. You know, they hate each other now. So they're, they're backing different people. And Innocent said, I'm going to back Richard's nephew, Otto, because Otto hates the Holy Roman Empire, which would make him a great guy to be the next Holy Roman Emperor. Again, European politics. Otto's family has traditionally opposed the, the Emperor's clan, the Hohenstaufen clan. And he's like, that's who I want then. I want a guy who will, who will break the, the, the ruling body of the Holy Roman Empire. But the Pope has already been kind of in bed with England, and this is just going to get him even deeper. The Pope in England, Pope Innocent in particular, are really tightly intertwined. Henry II had gotten the Pope his job. This new Pope still feels very, very connected to all that kind of stuff. So, he decides to make a settlement with everybody about how to figure out who should be king of, of, of Sicily. And he says, the German princes get to decide who gets to be king of Sicily. And the German princes said, well, yeah, it's our empire. The whole Roman Empire belongs to us in Germany. Just an interesting concept in and of itself. But he says, yes, you guys then get to decide who gets to rule the boot heel of Italy. That just makes sense. Everybody understands that. But the Pope has to decide if the king is worthy. The Pope has to say, yes, but I have to sign off on it. Because otherwise, I mean, it, is it potentially possible that I would have to sign off on a pagan being the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire? Of course the Pope would have to decide, yes, this guy's Christian enough to be the king of Sicily. Right? And if the Pope decides the king is unworthy, you're going to have to just go pick another one and keep picking another one until you find one that I think is worthy. But you get to pick him. You guys get to do it. I just get to sign off on it. Who ultimately decides who's king of, it, of Sicily? The Pope. Even though the German princesses go, it's all us. I love it when you go to <coughs> I love it when you go to some sort of conference and they say, now you guys on the floor, you're going to make all the decisions. We, we are just facilitating. By the way, We've decided these are your two options. You're kind of deciding, no, it's all on you. My options are, do we have pizza for dinner, or do I poke you with a sharp stick? I vote pizza. See, that was you guys. No, actually, I, I, I wanted lasagna. You guys chose pizza. Oh, stop it. Anyway. So Innocent gets to d decide not only who gets installed as emperor, but because... He gets to decide the emperorness, but also who gets to be the pool of people who might even get to be emperor. He gets to decide this all the way around. So Innocent calls French priest, uh, print, uh, uh, French priest, folk of Nui, to uh, to, pr uh, to preach a new crusade. Nui. Yeah, you say that sentence. It's a hard sentence, man. But he's like, folk, you go, you go, do this. And among those people that he converted to his cause was a guy named Simon de Montfort, uh, the, the Earl of Leicester, and a Venetian guy named Boniface of Mont, uh, Montferrat, who was elected to be the leader of the crusade. Here he is being given the leadership of the crusade. So you got a Venetian. Does that matter? Why a Venetian? They're pretty powerful these days. Venice is extremely powerful. What else? The rich. You have to take off from Venice to get to the Holy Land without That's good, too. That's important. We'll see that in a second. But also, remember, Germany doesn't care. England and France are fighting each other. Spain is fighting itself. 
So you got to find another major power, right? It's got to have some sort of secular link. You've got to find some sort of tether. Venice is powerful. Venice has a rationale. And, and you're right, Venice is a seaport. If you're going to go from somewhere, that's a good place to go for. Added to that, if you remember, the Venetians in Constantinople were extremely powerful. Remember they, they were under the patronage of the Empress? Remember we talked about that before? So powerful that when the next guy came in, when Andronicus came in in, in 1182 and deposed the Empress, there was a big riot in Constantinople. You remember that from last time? And in 1182, the, Constantinople, the, the city of Constantinople rioted and slaughtered all the Latin Christians dragged sick people from their beds in, in hospitals, killed men, women, children, old people, dragged uh, the, the head of the papal legate through the streets on the tail of a wild dog. Especially the Venetians did not handle this well. The remaining Venetians were expelled from the city, and they were disallowed from going to any of the other Byzantine ports. Any of these light blue ports, they don't get to go to. The Venetians, who are this powerful naval power, have been thrown out of all this kind of stuff. Why might a Venetian be willing to lead the crusade? To get back. To get back. Well, like, except that the crusade is against this green part, not against the blue part, right? The green part is the, is the Muslims. The blue part is the Christians. It is on the way, though, right? And you gotta, you want to expand your power base. I mean, you're Venice, and you just got just got taken from the Byzantine Empire. Go take some, some Muslim things, right? That makes right, sense. And the Venetians did have... <coughs> On the ports in the Mediterranean, were before the uh, Muslims took it back. Mm -hmm. That was a big trading partner. Yeah, so you're up here in Venice, and you're big into naval trade, and all of this, everything light blue and everything green, you don't get to mess with anymore. You go, well, that stinks to be you then, right? Yes, we'll help. We'll help. So Venice said, we are happy to, especially since this particular crusade is going to go straight to Egypt and attack the capital of the Ayyubids. Uh, of, of Saladin's group. They're like, yep, we're going to skip the Holy Land, we're going to go straight to Egypt, we're going to hit it at its source. We're thinking this time. No more of this dealing with the sides of the things. Go hit them where it hurts. And so the Venetians... By bomb Tokyo. It's a way of going, you know, we will take this out. We will hit you where it hurts you. We, we keep squabbling over this stuff on the fringes of your empire because that's important to us. What if we, like Sherman, go down south and start making messes in your territory? You might say, fine, 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 take Jerusalem. Give us Cairo, you take Jerusalem. But Venice says, yeah, we will, we will convoy all of you guys to the east. We'll give you a third of our population of Venice to go just knock their socks off. This will be great. But we're going to require this huge amount. You know, everything that you guys have raised so far, we'll take all of that. We'll take all of that plus more. From the moment you start your crusade, you're going to be bankrupt. So what do you do? Then it says, I got an idea. If you will help us raid Byzantine ports along the way, we will do this. Refinance your crusade that way. We will, we will give you all this stuff. You will get to do everything you want to do on crusade if you will help us raid these Byzantine ports, because by golly, they deserve it. The Byzantines have been jerks. Hit those pale... It's, it's, they're not Orthodox Christians anyway. They're Eastern Orthodox Christians. It's not like they're Romans. Right? We're not asking you to attack Romans. That seems fair, doesn't it? Simon goes, I ain't doing this. This, is just, this has gone wrong already. And so on ethical grounds, Simon goes right back to France and goes, I'm done. I'm washing my hands of this. I refuse to do this. This is wrong. I will not attack other Christians. But Boniface says, sure, no, that makes total sense. Why? Because they're not uh, Roman Catholics. They're Eastern Orthodox. And what do you know about Boniface? He's Venetian. It's like, yeah, this makes total sense to me. I'm not French. I'm Venetian. These guys earned it. No, that's great. Let's do it. Now, the first port that they attack is actually a Catholic port in Dalmatia. Well, you got to start somewhere. And, this, and, and Zara in Dalmatia is a rival of Venice. Yeah. Okay, wait, wait. So before we can attack the Muslims, we got to attack Christians. But it's not like they're Roman Christians. 
What's the first port we attack? A Roman Christian port. Why? Well, we don't like them anyway. So let's attack Zara. The people of Zara put up banners all over the place saying, we're Catholic. We're Roman Catholic. We heard about them. They've got street, you know, pictures in the streets going, Catholic. They're holding up Catholic crosses going, we're Catholics. And the Crusaders didn't care. Looted the cities. Destroyed Zara in large part because they needed the money and because they've been given a justification. The Savage War story, you put a pointy hood on anybody, you tell anybody that they can be as cruel as they want to to somebody else, they tend to. Right, study psychology sometime. The human mind is an extremely malleable thing. Yes? I also heard that um, only the leaders knew they were going to Egypt. They got all the recruits saying, we're going to Jerusalem. Oh, yeah. Well, okay. We'll see this in, in a second. <coughs> but um, the leaders didn't tell people lots of stuff. I mean, the, the, a lot of people are just kind of like, I'm along for the ride. They wouldn't even recognize whether they're in Jerusalem or Cairo or any place. So, yeah, nobody, nobody really knew, other than the Venetian leaders of this crusade, what was going on at any given point. Uh, in fact, the Pope excommunicated the Venetians for doing this, but the leaders didn't tell the Venetians that they'd been excommunicated. Because they're like, well, that might undermine the crusade, wouldn't it? So the Pope was like, you can't kill a bunch of Roman Christians. That's it, you're excommunicated. Leaders are like, everything's fine. We're not telling, we're not telling the troops anything about this. Boniface himself wasn't even there because he was meeting with the Byzantine prince, an exiled prince of, of, of Constantinople, named Alexius IV. He was the no. Did he put his stamp on the curve? Oh, yeah. Now, there's two things. There, some people say he was off meeting with him for politicking reasons, and we'll discuss that in a second. Other people say he was away from Zara specifically so he wouldn't get excommunicated. He signed on and said, yes, let's go do that, and then not showed up, so he has plausible deniability. Whatever the case, he's meeting with this guy. He's meeting with Alexius. And this is fun because Alexius really, really, really wanted to get back to Constantinople. He's like, I want to be emperor. My family's gotten exiled. I want back. So here's the thing. He says, I'm going to pay the entire debt owed to the Venetians. I'm going to give 200,000 silver marks to the Crusaders personally, in your guys' pockets. I'm going to supply 10,000 Byzantine professional troops, including 500 knights, to your crusade. I'm going to give the service of the Byzantine navy to transport the entire Crusader army to Egypt. How does he do that? He's the emperor, right? He's exiled. Yeah, he's sitting in Germany at the moment. He's in Swabia. But he's, he's promising all this stuff. How could he possibly deliver? Oh, one other promise. I will place the Eastern Orthodox Church under the authority of the Pope where it belongs. How is he going to promise this? How can he possibly make good on this? If he becomes... Oh, yeah, okay, so you got to do one thing for me. Just one. One pit stop. One little thing. Could we please go to Constantinople and lay siege to that? Just... Just hand me Constantinople, and all this is yours. Look at this. All that. All you have to do, you're already raiding all these Byzantine ports, right? Just one more port. Just, just, just one. So what do you do? Constantinople, here we go. There you go. <laughs> so the first action, the first major action of the Fourth Crusade of the Holy Land against the Muslims is to lay siege to Constantinople and strangle it until everybody finally at least agrees to make Alexius co-emperor with his, uh, his reinstated father, Isaac II. They, they deposed the, the existing emperor, and they, and they put Isaac II in, and they said, at least, at least let Alexius be co-emperor. Then, then we can let you go. Now, if you remember, Constantinople keeps doing things badly in the last crusades. I mean, they, they kind of left people to their own devices in, in the second crusade, let them dangle and things. Third Crusade, they locked the doors and stuff. So, I mean, you can see where relationships have broken down. But this is maybe putting it just a little a little far. You know, we're actually seeing you as, as the enemy here. In the process, they burned a chunk of Constantinople, left 20,000 people homeless. Not a lot of fun. The worst part is Alexius says, I don't have any money to give you. I... I I know I promised stuff, but uh, I don't really have um, 
200,000 mark. I don't have 100,000 soldiers. I Stick with me for six more months. Six more months, and then I'll have a power base, and, and I'll give you everything that you want. I know I said it was a pit stop. Just to hang out in Constantinople. It's a nice city. Hang out in Constantinople. Just six more months, and I'll give you everything that you want. I'll tell you what, I'll melt down everybody's religious icons. I'll melt down parts of the Hagia Sophia, the, that beautiful uh, church here in, in Constantinople. I'll, I'll, I'll give you money that way. And it's still not enough. Now, by the way, how does the people of Constantinople feel about this? They just got invaded by a bunch of foreigners from Venice. From <coughs> Venice. And 20 years ago, we kicked all the Venetians out of Constantinople, and they've come back, and they're, they're invading us. Our brand-new emperor is melting down our stuff to give to the Venetians, and it's still not enough. So Alexius takes half the troops and goes chasing down the deposed emperor, going, you stole a bunch from the treasury, I'm going to get that back and bring it back so I can pay the Venetians. So half the Crusaders are gone. This new emperor is gone. What do you think is going to happen? Well, first, the people of Venice, or the people of Constantinople say, we don't like you, right? We don't, feel, we don't really feel you should be here. So the city riots against the Crusaders who set another fire that leaves 100,000 people homeless now. The Pope declares, pardon me? I don't know, it was the most populous city in the world at the time, so um, I don't remember right off the top of my head. Um, less now. Um, the Pope declares all of this has been part of God's design. Yes, I know that we excommunicated you a minute ago, but now I realize that once you have successfully taken Constantinople, and now that you're all kind of droopy because Constantinople didn't seem to appreciate getting taken, we have ruled that this is God's will. You guys are doing God's work by putting the, those, those Eastern Orthodox people under their proper Roman rule. That's what they're supposed to be. Praise God for what you guys are doing. And I actually did help the Crusaders. I'm like, I feel better about myself now. Which is, you know, which is important. So the Crusaders broke through the city walls, set fire to it again, leaving another 15,000 people homeless. They burned most of the city to the ground. Now, what's fun is, remember the Varangian guards that we've talked about before? The, the descendants of the Vikings that have been for centuries helping out down there? These guys did an awesome job of holding off the Crusaders. So you have these Viking guards fighting Venetians in Constantinople. But they, they, they stopped in the middle to try to negotiate better pay from the city leaders. And the city leaders said, no, do your job. At which point the Varangians stopped helping and the Crusaders just poured right in and did everything that they wanted. So, important safety tip, pay your troops well, right? <laughs> Especially if they stop in the middle of the battle going, I think I'd like a raise. Look at how well we're holding off the crusading army from, from, uh, from Venice. I think I'd like a raise. That might be a time to go, you get a raise. Keep fighting. Anyway, Crusaders completely sacked the Christian city of Constantinople, slaughtering thousands. That's interesting. Began as a simple looting and pillaging, but it became payback. They remembered that Latin massacre of 1182, and it's payback, because that's what crusades are all about now. Tit for tat, right? Retaliation. That's where it makes sense as Christians for us to act. They burned libraries, even the imperial library, containing irreplaceable books, uh, works of art, uh, paintings. They melted down icons. They raped nuns. They raped priests. They looted homes and hospitals. They laid waste to that last European bastion of Roman civilization. It's like, we are going to destroy this at a level that the, Rand the, that the Vandals didn't do with Rome when they had sacked Rome. Because at least the Vandals said, we're gonna, like, we'll be here for a couple of days and then we'll just take everything we want and leave. The Crusaders stayed there and just kept raping and kept pillaging and kept destroying things. One modern historian summarized it this way. The Crusaders vented their hatred for the Greeks most spectacularly in the desecration of the greatest church in Christendom. They smashed the silver iconostasis, the icons, the holy books of the Hagia Sophia, and seated upon the patriarchal throne a whore who sang coarse songs as they drank wine from the church's holy vessels. The Greeks were convinced that even the Turks, had they taken the city, would not have been as cruel as the Latin Christians. They did everything that they could to desecrate 
Now think about that. How, what would, how could you, as a Christian, desecrate a Christian church? And we're not even talking like, well, there are a bunch of Anabaptists who don't believe in that whole holy vessels thing. These are Roman Catholics taking the holy water and, and urinating in it. These are Roman Catholics seating a prostitute on the bishopric throne in the cathedral. These are Roman Catholics drinking wine out of the holy water, God, or out of the, uh, uh, the goblets used for communion and stuff. How do you justify that? Christian name only. Well, absolutely. Well, that's that's no, that's where I was, not Christians. Exactly. And well, that's where I was ultimately going with that. Yes. So you just jump right to it. Yes. I mean, these are not. Even though they say that they're Christians, they have no concept of what that means. How can you be a have Roman Catholic theology and justify psychologically doing this? God's work. Pope said we were. Pope said we were. And as long as somebody says what you're doing is fine, you get to do it. Um. And these guys are doing it wrong. They're they're doing services to God in Greek. They deserve what they get, don't they? I mean, anything we do. And to be honest, anytime that somebody is is doing something that is patently unfair, if you have any shred of conscience at all, you will tend to feel guilty as you're doing that unfair thing. And if you feel guilty and still do something, it tends to draw you to cruelty. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. Let's say this in yourself, specifically. But have you ever gotten into a situation where you realized you slipped into, not just, well, darn it, I'm right, but you slipped into actually being cruel in your argument because part of you realized you're the one that was in the wrong in the first place? And so, yeah. And today, I mean, not today, that passed and died in the southern church that would canvas all the deaths of soldiers, mm -hmm. what he said at that time. Yep. Justified. Yep. It, it, it's justified because there's a part of you that should know better, and so you go, but I'm doing God's work, but I know that this is wrong, but I'm doing God's work, and so I have to go full bore through it. And so I'm just, there's a malice that enters in when you're doing something wrong. The Imago Dei in you and goes, this is, this is not right. And so you find yourself flinging yourself into abandon. It's not enough that we just start slaughtering people. Once we start getting into this, it, it, anything is justified. And the worse we get, the more we say, well, they deserved it at our hands. Because they're farther away from God than we are. So we should hate them. I'm amazed at the, the loving, decent caring Christians in our, our world that would say God hates fags. You know, or, or, or somehow say, it's not just enough to say I think homosexuality is a sin, but to be malicious about it, to be name-calling, to be vile about how we do it. You go, why? Why would you? Why? Because we feel justified. It is our version of the pointy hood. Well, there were a couple of crusaders actually made it to the Holy Land. Not very many. They did, and they didn't end up necessarily going to Egypt. They tried to go to the Holy Land, and they basically didn't accomplish much. Most returned to Venice, bringing the spoils of Constantinople, and Innocent said, Booyah. Yes, I, I, will, take, I will take the thousands, millions of dollars worth of stuff that you're bringing back to Rome. And again, the world map changes. The, the, that, that Eastern Empire has now become the Latin Empire of the East. This has now ruled a satellite empire of Rome. What had been the Byzantine Empire scoots eastward and becomes this weak Nicene Empire. It, 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 that doesn't last much longer. But then also, there's another little uh, kingdom that, or actually a, a despotate, uh, that emerges in, in, in uh, western Greece, basically. It becomes the safe haven for dispossessed Greeks trying to flee Constantinople from all the crusaders that are there for Jesus. But what's interesting is you go, as, as, as huge as these changes are, one of the biggest ones is, you go, finally that whole continuous Greek civilization, I mean, from, from Aristotle and Sophocles and all these things, all the way up through now, there's been this continuous Greek civilization going on. Even when Rome fell, and the Vandals sacked Rome, 
there's still a Greek civilization going on in Constantinople. And that is finally dead now. That's been murdered as part of a crusade for Jesus. And so, in a, in a huge backlash against everything Greek, um, and, and we're going to see this didn't actually last long because there are some people that start bringing Aristotle and things back, but there's this huge backlash. The, 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 the church in Rome is, is burning everything Greek, burning Aristotle, burning Sophocles, burning everything that reminds them of anything Greek. We came, we at least attempted our level best as, as, as a church to destroy everything that had come before having to do with Greek culture. It's kind of a sad moment in, in history to me. Even though to the to the Latin, and even, even in some respects, even today in the Catholic Church, they will look back at this and go, ah, oh, the establishment of that great, glorious 60-year Latin Empire. And for a time, we had this Latin Empire in Constantinople. And you go, but it's a horror. Yeah. Um, not as much. It was more associating Greeks with heresy, because the Greeks were... Uh, were Eastern Orthodox and doing it wrong. But also, everybody tends to think that everybody who does it differently than me is, is dumb. Um, they're doing it badly. If I'm an intelligent person, everybody that drops the G's off the ends of their words and, and uses um, uh, vulgarisms that, that don't understand how to speak well, we look at it and go, you guys are so uneducated. And if you're uneducated, then all those people who use all them highfalutin words and try to always impress you with how smart they are, well, they don't understand how to, how to do the real world, right? Why don't, the, why don't those black people learn how to speak English well? Why do you white guys always try to, to, to make everybody talk like you? How come you southerners are always, how come you northerners are always, you know, women are like the blondes. Let me tell you about men. Everybody who isn't me is bad. People do this all the time. To the Greeks, the civilized Greeks over here, these are a bunch of barbarians. You know, they, they, just, they don't even understand the concept of the fork. They're still using daggers to eat with. Do you know when we started using forks in the United States? Yeah, early 1800s. Puritans did not bring forks over. Actually, uh, at, at, uh, at, during the time of the Puritans, there was one fork in the United States. <laughs> Governor of Massachusetts had a fork. And everybody went, what kind of highfalutin snob is this guy? So back here, they're sitting there going, they don't even use forks for crying out loud. They're just, they rip the meat from the bone. These guys are, these are barbarians. And in Rome, they look over at Constantinople and go, they're just a bunch of gays walking around in their robes. <laughs> I mean, just sitting there eating their, with their forks and speaking their babble talk. <laughs> you hate anybody that isn't you. And to the degree to which you realize that that hate is unfounded, you hate them all the more vitriolically. So yes, there were a lot of things that justified it in their minds, not the least of which is like, well, take those, take those college boys down a few pegs. Just like these guys are like, you guys are a bunch of animals. Which brings us to going out east. 1206, a guy named Timujin takes power in the east. 1204, the Persian gurus had invaded northern India. And, and so they're forcing all these, um, all these Hindus to convert to Islam. There's still a big fight in India between the Muslims and the Hindus, right? Starts back in 1204. As a result, everything starts changing there in Central Asia. With Islam moving eastward like that, all the different Mongol tribes start realizing they probably need to pull together. They, I mean, there's Mongols all across Central Asia, but they're not coordinated. So they start trying to work together as a form of self-protection against Islam. But that just made them all start fighting each other a little bit. And they, because we're in close proximity, because we're trying to interact with each other, now we're starting to chafe, right? As long as you take those 5,000 acres and I'll take these 10,000 acres, everything will be fine. But once we actually start communicating, now we're going to have some problems. Well, in 1171, Tatars had murdered a guy named Yasugai. 
who was the chieftain of this powerful tribe that was important amongst the Mongols. And that meant that Yasugai's children and his wife were left with nothing. Because he had been the chieftain, but once he was killed, in Mongol culture, once, once the father's dead, well then, let the children starve. Let the wife starve. They're dead. You know, they're dead to us. The father's dead. Who cares? So Temujin and his family were left to try to eke an existence out by eating, you know, whatever, I don't know what to do, marmosets, wombats, whatever it is that you find in, in Mongolia, little animals running around here and there. So Temujin, yes, the guy's third son, actually rises to become the alpha in his family when he's willing to kill one of his brothers over food. And it became very clear that this guy is willing to do anything. So Temujin, growing as a, 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 in strength. By the way, he had red hair, if you'll notice, which is not at all uncommon, even today, amongst Mongols, to have red hair and green eyes. Perfectly Mongol-lied. I mean, yeah, they're definitely Asian, but he's got red hair and green eyes. Anyway, 1177, Temujin is captured by a neighboring tribe because they're constantly capturing one another to be slaves. But he escapes with the help of a sympathetic guard and a new friend that he makes named Jamuka. And they become blood brothers. They're going to be in it through thick and thin together. They escape from captivity. 1178. He's 16 years old, and he goes and claims his bride. Back when his father had been important, he had set up this marriage. Timujin said, I know that we're not important anymore, but she's still mine, and I get this bride. Plus, she's important, so I'm going to take her, and she's going to be mine. As far as we can tell, he actually liked her. So it's more than just political. But he goes and he takes, the fan, it takes her, her from him. And then she's captured by a completely different tribe. Because everybody's constantly capturing one another, right? That's what they did. Temujin finds her, and with the help of Jamuka and his, his mentor, a guy named Tokru, who is the Christian Khan of a nearby other tribe, because tribes are constantly fighting each other. Uh, and he was also a blood brother to Temujin's father, Yesugai. With the help of Tokru, they ride in and they rescue her, and it would make a great action movie. Awesome. Booyah. Ba -dum, ba -dum, ba -dum. Save the girl. Ba -dum, ba -dum, ba -dum, ba -dum. But just even here, you realize how many different religions are being shown in one central region. And amongst the, the Mongols, they basically said, you get to believe whatever you want to believe. None of this really matters anyway. It's all basically to make you feel better about life. Knock yourself out. Whatever makes you feel good, do that. Which is kind of religious tolerance when you think about it. You know, since it doesn't matter anyway, I wouldn't kill anybody over religion. Over a horse, yeah. Over religion, no. Over food, kill your brother. But over religion, that's just silly. So they looked over at the, at the Europeans and said, you guys have everything backwards. You wouldn't kill your brother to get a scrap of food? But you'd kill each other over religion. You'd kill each other over some invisible bearded guy that doesn't exist. But not over food so that you keep living. You guys are weird. So anyway... Every setback in Temujin's life seemed to make him bounce back stronger and stronger. He keeps getting more and more powerful. Togrul gave him 20,000 horsemen. And Temujin is this brilliant strategist that begins these series of campaigns and brings him fame and power. And everything he does keeps getting, making him stronger and stronger and stronger. He never lost a battle. But beyond that, he made allies out of the armies that he conquered. Contrary to what the Mongols used to do, which was to conquer everybody, kill all the soldiers, loot their village, and move on, Temujin said, no, 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 you guys get to be part of my army. And your village, I will now protect. Your children become my children. Everybody he beats makes his, strong, his army stronger. His army gets huge. I mean, crazy huge. I mean, like, nobody knows how big it was huge. It just keeps getting so big that people are like, I have a million we, we don't know how big it is. Never lost! And the more you don't lose, the less you lose, right? It just keeps getting better and better and better. Now, that's the tribes that he beat. The cities he had no respect for. He can't do anything with the city. It just sits there being a city. Villages, you can move along. You know, horsemen, you can move with you. City is just a place. It's just basically a treasure chest that people live in, right? So he had a tendency to just loot the city and burn it to the ground. Fine with that. And it's important to note that many of the cities in Eastern and, and Central Asia were Christian cities. They were Nestorian Christians. Remember the Nestorians from way back. So 
for the most part, most of the cities, that was where you had all these educated people, all these civilized Christians. So after he destroys all these cities, the only Christians left in Central Asia are the ones living out on the steppes, the ones who can't even read, the ones who had heard one time from a guy who had heard one time from a priest what Christianity was all about. Is it any wonder with the Latins moving in from the west and destroying Constantinople and Temujin and his Mongols moving down from the east and north and laying waste to all the cities? Is it any wonder that we look at it and go, well, how come the Eastern Orthodox Church didn't like take over the world? They got crushed. The beginning of the 13th century, they got absolutely chewed up and spat out by two major powers scooching on them. This is kind of huge. But again, scooching, yeah. Again, just like with everything with the Mongols, even the successes brought rivalry. Togrul's son resented Temujin. He's like, my dad likes you better than he likes me. And you keep winning. So he's like, I'm going to try to start undermining everything that you're doing. I'm going to remove you from power. So you're Temujin. What do you do? Oh, yeah. But not just that. When Togrul refuses to take sides, Temujin attacks and conquers the entire Karate tribe. He's like, anybody that has any loyalty to Togrul and his line, I'm killing. You support me, or you die. Well, that's fun, right? And, and I've got 20,000, no, I've got 50,000, no, I've got a million men behind me. It's, just, it's nothing to slaughter all you guys. Jamuka, who had been supportive of Togrul, just like, just like Temujin had been. Jamuka's like, I'm sticking out of here. I'm like, I, I have no idea if I'll survive this or not. So he escapes and goes, hangs out with the Naaman tribe, who then make him their con. They're like, man, you were second only to Temujin. You were really good at what you do. Tell you what, we've got our own coalition of tribes here. You be our con. You be the con over multiple tribes. So this is cool. Temujin is in control of all these tribes, and his best buddy is in control of all these tribes. They're going to rock, right? They were! Yesterday! But yes, Temujin kills Jamuka now, too. He's like, I, can't, I don't have any rivals. And Jamuka puts it really well at one point before his death. He said, there's, only, there's room for only one sun in the sky. There's room for only one Mongol lord. He even says, could, could I possibly be your companion? All I'm going to be is a louse in your collar. I'm... If the sun goes down, you're going to worry that I'm poisoning you. If the sun comes up, you're going to worry that I'm going to stab you in the back. You're, you're my best friend. You're my blood brother. And I know one of these days you're going to kill me. Because we're both getting powerful. And you won't let us both get powerful. And you're more ruthless than me. One of these days, you're going to kill me. Strangely, you did. And so the United Mongol tribes selected Temujin to be their strong Khan, i.e. their Genghis Khan. And he began a bloody swath of the known world. Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan was a brilliant strategist. Uh, he had one classic, I mean, just classic, that I got I to gotta just toss this one in because this is just brilliant to me. How do you get through the Great Wall of China? China builds a wall to keep you out. What do you do? You could do what the Germans did with the Maginot Line and go through Belgium around it. But there is no around it. They did a really good job of building the China, the Wall of China. What do you do? How do you get through a wall that big? Because the Great Wall of China has gates in it, and it's got openings so that people can get in up. They're locked and stuff. They lock them at night. They lock them if they see bad guys coming. Well, Genghis Khan had his troops ride up and do horse tricks. They'd ride up toward the gates, and they'd lock the gates. The Mongols. But then the guys would like stand up on their on their horses as they go. They'd ride along and see how close they could get to the to the wall and spin out. The little circus. The little circus. So every day, you know, Mongols would start riding toward the gates and they shut the gates and lock it. And the Mongols would start doing all these trick things and I'm riding backwards on my horse and I'm spinning like this. I'm, I'm riding two horses and stuff. They do that day after day. Ride toward the gates and they lock the gates and then like bum 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 and jump over one another. You jump over each other's horses and you just go, holy cow. Right toward the gates, and he's just like, okay, what are they going to do today? Close the gates today. 
right straight through. Everything we've been doing for the last several days, all this horseplay, is all to get you to the point where you think all we're doing is playing. We're just waiting for the day you don't close the gates. We ride on through and take over everything. By the time he died in 1227, this is Genghis Khan's empire. This is the Holy Roman Empire. Right there. What is it? Maybe. Because this is kind of stretching. It's something like 20%, like one fifth the size of Genghis Khan's empire is Rome's empire. And people talk about, oh, the Holy Roman Empire covering the world. No. The Roman Empire covered the most known world, the Holy Roman Empire. No, no, no. This is what he controlled. Huge. And he leveled almost every major city in Central Asia, killing 40 million people in his lifetime. 40 million before the use of firearms. We look at Hitler and say, you killed 6 million people. That's just unconscionable. Really? 40 million before there was even such a thing as a, as a bullet. Before you had poison gas. Just with pointy stuff, killing 40 million. That's 11% of the world's population died because of the Mongols under Genghis Khan. But again, it's also almost everything that was left of the Eastern Orthodox leadership, all the, all the civilization, all the, uh, the education is in utter disarray. They are just getting trounced right and left. Now, here's something fun to think about here. As I said, the common Mongol religious practice is to say everybody gets to believe whatever they want, right? Tolerance. How might history have run a different course if instead of following the Mongol practice of letting everybody believe whatever they want, or the murderous practice of the Muslim jihads or the European Christians' crusades? How would, Christian, how would the world have been different if the Christian Toghrul Khan had discipled a starving young Temujin, had taken in his family and said, I will make sure you guys are okay, had discipled him and brought him to Christ. How would Genghis Khan, how would history have been different? It's possible, not much, because we look at history and we say, you know, great Christian leaders that we've seen so far run around slaughtering everybody. It's also possible that this is just an extremely motivated young man. He would have been a missionary if he didn't feel like he constantly had to fight and kill over every scrap of bread. <coughs> Maybe all that passion would have been focused somewhere else. How important is it to make a difference in the lives of the people around you? It's huge. Basically, you never know. You never know. And so it's worth always making sure that you actually work on it. 1208, we're back in Europe. Still in a time of bloodshed. I wanted to make sure that we got at least this far today. The Albigensian crusade. You remember the Cathars, the Albigensians? People who came from Albi. Albigensians. So you remember the Cathars, the guys who were a bunch of Gnostics that said you have to purify yourself by removing from yourself everything that's material. Um, everything, sex is bad. Food is bad. If you could get away without eating, that'd be great. Um, you have to focus on total spirituality so that you can be reincarnated over and over again to become better people until you attain oneness with God, right? These people. They're in France. And you should all remember the Waldensians. I love these guys, right? Peter Waldo. Proto-reformers that teach things like priesthood of all believers, the authority of scripture, you need to present the gospel in the language of the people, purgatory, transubstantiation arts, superstitions, etc. These guys rock. <coughs> well, Pope Innocent III really, really, really wanted to stop all that. He's like, I want to fix things. I want to go to the Holy Land and fix things. That didn't work out so well. So a little bit later, I'm going to try a fifth crusade, and we're going to make it right this time. But I need to stop these, this Albigensian thing, these Waldensians. Let's get this right. That didn't help that a guy named Raymond VI, the Count of Toulouse, supported the Cathars. He's like, not just I don't want to help the Rome to, to, to step on them. I'm going to support them. I'm going to use my troops to give them sanctuary. I think it's ridiculous that you guys are running around persecuting these people. So the papal legate, a guy named Pierre de Casselon, uh, excommunicated Raymond and said, nope, you get kicked out of heaven. You don't get to help. If you're not going to help us stop these people, you get, you get kicked out. At which point Raymond had Pierre murdered. 
You don't get to murder the papal legate without getting in trouble. The papal legate is the papal representative, right? Although you're already excommunicated. You're already excommunicated. He's not bad about it. He did penance later, and he got himself excommunicated again later on. And just wacky fun there. Now, King Philip decided to do diddly. He's like, I'm not taking sides in this at all. So the Pope decides that there should be a new crusade in France. Before we... The French have been leading most of the crusades. But no, no, no. We're going to go to France with our next crusade. To lead the crusade, he's like, I'm going to call on somebody I can trust. Simon de Montfort, right? This guy has some ethics. This guy I know loves Jesus. He will go kill people for me because I'm the Pope. Right? That makes sense, doesn't it? Oh, come on. Sure it does. It makes total sense. This is the guy that turned back and wouldn't be obnoxious in the, in the Fourth Crusade. This is the guy that I can trust to do this. So, for about 50 years, France is a battleground. Cathars, Waldensians, anybody seen as a possible heretic gets slaughtered willy-nilly, without trial. Now, this is important because I'm not going to justify the Inquisition by any stretch. But think of it this way. For 50 years, anybody who looks like a heretic to anybody with a sword, we get to kill. Until the Catholic Church goes, wait, wait, wait. They deserve a trial. Right? So, you got to put things in their contexts. I'm a huge fan of context. We tend to sit there and go, oh, the, the, the Crusades or the, uh, the Inquisition is a horrible thing. It's a very unpleasant thing. But it is a step up from this. It's an attempt, at least, to make sure that you don't slaughter everybody without giving them a trial. But, here we got slaughter without trial. In fact, um, the Crusaders came to a city called Beger. They asked the Pope how they're supposed to sort the heretics from the Catholics. How do we, how do we know? You told us we're supposed to slaughter all the heretics in the city, but we don't, we don't know who the heretics are. How do we, how do we know which ones we're supposed to slaughter? You're the Pope. What do you tell them? Kill them all. Kill everyone. Innocent says, surely the Lord discerns which ones are his. Because they have a bunch of Cathars in the city. Plus it's in France. I'm not French. I'm sitting over here in Rome. I'm Italian for crying out loud. I don't care. I know that they have a, a large Cathar contingent, a large Albigensian contingent there in the city. I don't know which ones are Cathars and which ones are Catholics. Kill them all. Easy answer. Yeah. Kill them all. Let God sort them out. This is where we get that phrase. It's the modern American equivalent of what the Pope said in 1208. Yeah, I don't care. Slaughter all of them. When they get to heaven, they're not going to say, well, you sent me to paradise. Darn you. No. God knows his own. He'll sort them out at the, at the judgment seat. It's not your job. Just kill them all. Yep. But at least that wasn't, uh, at least that wasn't religion. I mean, that was, that was us saying, well, they're, they're all Asian. Kill them all. If they, if they sound Vietnamese, shoot them. I don't know. But this is kind of a terrifying point in history in terms of the church. More than 20,000 people died in that single day at Beijing. 20,000 people in one day. This went on for 50 years. And most of the people they killed that day were Catholic. Sick, twisty time in history. But there were good things going on, too. I don't want to end on a horrible note. There were some positives going on. So next time we get together for this, we talk about Francis of Assisi. I want to talk about some nice people going on here. Francis, he's a nice guy. Look at him. He's a happy, nice guy, right? This is a good guy. So we're going to talk about that. But I, I do want you to, to appreciate what it meant to be a Christian at this point has nothing, and this is kind of what Cliff was getting at earlier, has nothing to do with trying to honor Christ in the ways that Scripture talk about honoring Christ. What the world was focused on at this point in history was to say, what does the world see as an important value? How do I point that toward Jesus? I'm going to shoehorn God into my worldly priorities, as opposed to building my priorities based on God's priorities. Now, how do we do that today? How do we do that today? We don't usually run around slaughtering entire cities and saying, for Jesus. What do we do where we say, I'm going to use 
worldly priorities and point them toward Jesus. Okay, how is that using a worldly priority instead of a, a biblical priority? We, we, I think we can do that. We can share our faith from worldly priorities instead of godly priorities. Why? Why would you share your faith for less than biblical reasons? Okay, perfect example. Let's link these together. Why do you want to do? Why do you want to do outreach? Because we want to be a big church. Why? So that we can have influence. Why? So that we can change the world. So you're going to get to the point where you can change the world by building your church based on worldly priorities, right? Perfect example of, of how how we can do something that the world says is important and just point that toward Jesus and say, "Yeah, look, that's that's God honoring." Is that? They want be happy. There you go. It's a worldly thing. Alright, and so, and again, it's not wrong to reach out. It's good to reach out. We should be reaching out. It's not even wrong to want to see the kingdom of God grow through our church. That's good. But the priority was wrong. It's, it's not bad to want to be happy. It's not bad to want to be comfortable. But how many churches make their ministries designed based on what makes the most people feel the most comfortable? Because that's what will draw in the world. The world doesn't want to, to hear about being stretched. The world wants to hear about being comforted. And so um, I remember, granted it was 20 years ago, but I remember a, a pastor um, speaking at a, at a conference where he specifically said, the pastor's job is to comfort. If you ever do a sermon that is making people feel uncomfortable, you've done a disservice to the gospel because you're pushing people away from God instead of drawing them toward God. So, yes, it, it was very much a yikesy moment. Um, Exactly. You've heard me say this before. A large part of my job is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. I mean, that's, that's what I'm supposed to do as a pastor. And yes, because the world says we need to be comfortable, we, we say we're going to market ourselves to the world as making them comfortable. Why? So that we can get the world to come into our church. Why? So that we can change them to look more like themselves. Or me. Or whatever. But not like Christ. What were you going to say? George Berber, when he was in high school, convinced about Christ. He shared and a lot of people became a Christian and he realized he wasn't. Mm -hmm. He done that for a period of time. And that's amazing. Well, okay, even that's a perfect example. I'm a Christian. Why? Because I self-define that way. I go to church. I'm not a Muslim. I'm not an atheist. I'm a Christian. I sing Christian songs. Isn't that how the world says it? I'm a Democrat. Well, I don't always vote Democrat, but I mean, that's, that's I've made myself Democrat. I'm, a, you know, I've self-defined. Therefore, I'm a Democrat. Doesn't actually have to. I don't even have to vote. I still call myself a Democrat. Uh, you know, I'm a whatever. I I define myself this. I'm, I'm I'm married to my wife. I'm a married man. Well, unless unless my wife doesn't understand me, and this girl over here is kind of hot. Over and over again, the world says I don't actually have to consistently act like this, I just have to self-define this way. I have to self-label. So you get to the church and we go, well, but I'm going to do that, but point it toward Jesus. When I feel like it, I'm going to go to church. When I'm comfortable, I will do ministries that I feel comfortable doing. Um, yeah, I'm vaguely Christian, therefore I'm Christian. I'm going to take worldly priorities point it toward Jesus. We look at what the Crusaders are doing. We look at what the Muslims are doing at this time. We look at all these different things where people are saying, I'm going to, have to take worldly priorities and point them toward God. Say, I'm going to shoehorn God into the world's mindset. And we go, oh, well, they're horrible. Because they're off slaughtering people. We do the same things. The fact that we are only a couple of steps down the road that they might have been a league down is not the point. We're on the same road. I don't know that you can say we're only a couple steps down. Maybe this is more obviously worldly wrong, killing people. But if the church is um, basically not preaching the full counsel of God, if you are making people feel comfortable with their sin, yes, you're not killing them physically, but you're setting them up for eternal damnation. So maybe it doesn't initially look good wrong, but it, the consequences are even worse. I was giving us the benefit of the doubt, but yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> Even if you give yourselves the benefit of the doubt, we're on the wrong road. If Sarah is right, and I think she is, that, that you go, just because it's not so demonstrably 
immediately ugly looking, it doesn't mean that it's not just as wrong. How do we justify it? And yet, we do. And the more we justify it, the more vitriolic we tend to be toward the people that think differently than we do. So just stop and think when we go through this age of crusades, as difficult as it can be to hear about people murdering one another right and left, stop and go, wait, do I do this? Do I, does our church do this? Are there ways in which we do not honor Christ um, by our actions in the same ways that they do? If I find myself learning from history, can I apply it? Let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity to, to not be in a vacuum, for the opportunity to be reminded of why we are the way we are today, to be reminded of a mirror to history where we can learn to better understand where we're at today. I pray, Lord, give us your heart, your priorities. Let us start with you, end with you, and in the middle focus on you. Help us, Lord, to be your people and your kingdom the way you desire to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, next week is Resurrection Sunday. So instead of being here at 9 o'clock,